Raise Your Glasses to a podcast about alcohol, trends, and how agriculture plays a role in the brewing, fermenting, and distilling process. So pop that bottle cap or cork. Here's a toast from coast to coast. That's right. This is a toast from coast to coast. Another episode. This is episode 11. Can you believe that, guys? That is crazy. We've done 11 of these things already. I I mean, I can't believe you're still doing it. (laughs) Right? So I am here again, your host, Taylor, with my co-host, Joshua, in Florida. Josh, how are you this evening? Doing well. Doing well. How are you, Taylor? Very good. We also have our all-star superstar. Uh, Anything we can do to extend out his title, Matt, how are you? I'm doing better now because I'm going to... Perfect. Crack my first beer. There we go. Did you guys know that we are going to talk about bugs tonight? Did you know that? Did you you guys prepared to talk about bugs on this podcast, right? I thought this was a beer podcast, so beers, bugs, we'll figure it all out. Gotcha. We are talking about bugs because of our special guest tonight. She's special, that's true. Alex. Alex, where are you coming from? We've got Josh in Florida and we've got Matt and I here in California. Where are you coming from? I'm just north of you, so I'm over in Washington State in Wenatchee. And you like to hang out with bugs and pests, correct? I do, yes. (laughs) You are an entomologist for a living. I ran into you um, through our travels, through our professional careers. We met at a um, pest control conference, started talking about um, a, a pest for our jobs, and then... As you were telling me about it, I understood that you like working in hops, you like podcasts, and you like a good craft beer. So you were kind of destined to be on this podcast. You understand that, right? Absolutely. I think that sounds great. (laughs) So we were talking about the spotted lanternfly. It's something that we'll talk about a little bit more later on in the show. And we've actually touched base on a previous episode. Um, But uh, we were talking about that. You told me that you were interested in this, and you told me that you specifically like one hops over the others, and that's Citra, <laughs> which one of my favorites. Now, do you like drinking that, or do you like working in it, or both? Um, I Both, I guess. Uh, working with hops in general from a pest perspective, there are some varieties that are more susceptible to certain pests than others, but uh, when it comes to drinking it, yeah, Citra is one of my favorites. I love that citrus citrus kind of fruity flavor you're gonna fit right in josh tends to be a little bit on the west coast bitter side but he likes those fruity ones as well um we were talking earlier about you just recently got back from a a pretty substantial trip where'd you go yeah i went to whistler on a ski trip uh so besides chasing bugs on trail runs and things like that i also really like skiing so i went on a big ski trip with some friends uh up north to whistler canada and, uh, of course, beer was had on that trip. <laughs> Do they have a good uh, craft beer scene up in Canada? Is it any different? Uh, it reminds me a lot of just the general uh, Washington, Oregon, kind of Pacific Northwest beer scene. I mean, British Columbia is right in there, too. But, uh, yeah, we went to one of the lodges and, and had some beers together. And uh, one in particular stood out to me. And go figure, it also has citra in it. Um, So that was the hazy trail pale ale uh, from Whistler Brewing Company. It was pretty awesome. That is awesome. So you mentioned trail running, and this is something that I cannot wrap my head around. We've talked about this before. Exercise and beer, for me, does not go together. And uh, (laughs) you aren't just like jogging. You're, you're, You're aggressively running. What do you do? 
I, I'm a trail runner. I, I will say that I'm not necessarily fast, though. I'm, I'm pretty fast downhill, but when we're going up some pretty heavy elevation, um, I am definitely not running and power hiking. Uh, but I but I do think that balancing all of those miles with some beer at the end is a, a great way to do it. <laughs> Josh was talking about um, the in the last podcast, um, he was talking about one of the breweries he went to that's on the Appalachian Trail. So the hikers go in there. Now, I could see hiking and having a beer, but running and having a beer just does not compute with me. Matt, does that sound good to you after you work out? No, I need water. A lot of water. <laughs> Coors Light, maybe? Maybe Coors Light. <laughs> at, we have a cross-city race uh, here where we are, and at the end of the cross-city race, we my service group always volunteers there. They have a Michelob Ultra tent at the end of the cross-city race and I'm always baffled by how many people are drinking beer after they just ran a marathon. That's nuts to me. But heck yeah. <laughs> maybe I need to work out more if I knew. Maybe I would work out more if I knew there was a beer at the end of it. Well, at the end of most of my trail races, uh, they'll have the tent, and the tent usually has. I mean, it's always going to have water. It's going to have some sort of electrolyte drink. Then they're going to have chocolate milk and beer. And the conundrum is always like, oh, okay, what do I go for first? Because I've been drinking water the entire race. There's beer there, but there's also delicious chocolate milk. So it's usually a toss-up. <laughs> you could mix those two together and make a pastry stout, Matt, right? We can get one of those? Mm, that sounds good. We should try Ooh. that out. <laughs> <laughs> I like lactose and beer, but I like that. <laughs> do, you like, do you like pastry stouts? Is that something you're into? Uh, is pastry style similar to like the hazy IPAs that do have lactose in them, or is it more of a yeasty? So it's more kind of... of a sweeter stout. So it's going to be like oh, okay. uh, dessert-ish. Yeah, I, that's actually what I started. That sounds like what I started enjoying when I first started drinking beer. It was more of like a, the darker beer, heavier, thicker, fuller. Um, and then just in the last two years or so, uh, when I started really getting into the trail running, actually, um, got more into the hazy IPAs, which still have that creamy, fuller flavor and texture, um, but they're just a, a little bit lighter and a bit um, less desserty and more fruity. Yeah, that was your gateway beer. Definitely. Yeah, which is kind of ironic. I guess most people usually like a lighter beer first. I never really, I never went that way. So Josh was in charge of asking the uh, question we ask all of our guests, and I kind of jumped the gun there, Joshua. Sorry about that. But so you are Hazy IPA. That's that's your gig right now? For now, yeah. I mean, I guess it'll change over time. But um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> my latest favorite uh, from Rogue is that Bat Squatch. It's been, it's been really good. It's that Hazy India Pale Ale. I just had a Bat Squatch. I was up on a snowboarding trip up in North Carolina and had a Bat Squatch for the first time. It was excellent. Awesome. Yeah, that's usually what's in my pack when I when I go skiing. <laughs> Rogue Rogue does a pretty good job up there. So um we're gonna get yeah. right to our uh right to our tastings. That's how we start these shows. Um I'll explain it to you real quick, Alex, since you're gonna join us today. We'll All right. Talk, talk about our beers. Um, we look them up on Untapped is what we've used. We also use uh, Beer Advocate um, sometimes, but we use these two to look up what the ratings are, talk about the tasting notes, um, any alcohol levels on it, of course, and then there's some hops information and malt information, which we've come across too. So very interesting there. And usually we would do ladies first, but since we'll give you an example, I'm going to start off with Matthew here. Matt, what are you drinking tonight? 
Yeah. Ladies first. Ladies first. Yeah. Thanks, Josh. Um, <laughs> so I have. Uh, it's called. It's 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 a mouthful here. H D H C quadrangle test. Uh, it's a collaboration with Other Half and Trillium. This is a big dog one for you, right? This is when you got uh, you got porch bombed on this one. Yeah, this is an East Coast beer, New York area. So um, you know, I have to bring the fire for. For the people out there, Taylor, they demand it. I swear, you find the longest name beers ever. You, you'll be, we'll be like, "What's the name of your beer?" And you rattle off like ten words every time. And I'm like, "Wait, what is he drinking?" I want the yeah, airtime, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's the uh, alcohol? And is there any hops on there? Yeah, it's an Imperial Double IPA, so it's ten percent alcohol in this one. The hops are way over my head. I'm going to read this to you from Untapped because yeah. I don't understand any of it. C- so Citra heavy, right? Citra heavy from what I can understand. Uh, it's it's um, one with T90 citra pellets, T45 citra pellets, and cryo citra pellets as well as citra incognito. So four citras, hence the quad. It's a true citra explosion according to uh, the description here. <laughs> wow. You hit that. You hit that citra hard. Hey, you said you said bring the citra. So <laughs> I have no idea what half that stuff means either. I do know the cryo, right? We we want to do an episode on cryo, so that's interesting. I don't know the I don't know the difference between T ninety and T forty five, so we'll have to look into that. But uh, so it's super fruity, super juicy. It is, yeah. I mean, it's it's what you'd expect, but it is ten percent, and it is an imperial double IPA. So yeah, it's got a lot going on. What are the ratings on Untapped? The ratings on Untapped for the global for this one. Let's see here. Uh, 4.37 on the global. Wow. Oh. That's good. It's good. They make good stuff, huh? Other half and Trillium, yeah. Other half is out of... Other half's out of Brooklyn, New York. Trillium's out of Canton, Massachusetts. All right, Joshua, what did you end up uh, getting and what are you drinking tonight? I am drinking a Guayabara. Uh, it is a Citra Pale Ale. So it's strictly a Citra Pale Ale. Um, for the hop, it's by Cigar City, which I think you've had a few of those on your travels here to Florida. Um, it's a really solid beer. I gotta say, I think the reason I get it as much as I do, and what I love most about it, is they sell it in a twelve pack versus a six pack. You were kind of off on Cigar City there for a little while, so nice to have one that you you like. Right, because a lot of their like staple beers um, really went downhill when they sold out, but uh, they. The good thing about that was they started getting more of their experimental beers that you could only get at the brewery. They started getting those into the can, and Guayabara was one of them that, if you went down to the brewery, was an excellent beer, but you could never get it outside of the brewery, and Tampa's a long drive even for me. So, Were you able to find any ratings on that? Uh, yeah, it's a 3.77 on Untapped. That's not bad. Uh, alcohol percentage, did you mention that? Five and a half. Oh, all right. So easy drinking beer, something you can take out on the boat with you, too. Yeah, and that exactly why I drink a lot of them is because the twelve pack. When you're going fishing, like I know I'm gonna drink more than six beers because I'm gonna spill like thirty to forty percent of the beer. Yeah, yeah, very good. Um, I am drinking Citra Baby, which is an Alvarado Street Hazy IPA. They put this out a little while ago. I was holding on to it for this episode specifically. They they've done a series of these with different hops, so they finally did Citra Baby. Um, I text Matt immediately and was like, hey, we got to get this one because I'm a big Citra fan. Um, it is 7% ABV. It gets a 429 rating on untapped. 
I've had it. I've had it before. I had it one day when we got it. I ended up rating this a four and a half. It's right up my alley. So I rated it uh, pretty high. One of the other reasons why I selected this one was because the hops are straight from Peralt Farms in Yakima, Washington. You know anything about that, Alex? Yeah, I do. I work down there all the time. <laughs> so yeah, they uh, they they traveled up there, did a little. Um, uh, Instagram story on them selecting the hops out of there and stuff like that. So it was kind of cool. Yeah. Kind of well, Peral is uh, who developed the Citra hops. So right, that Absolutely is fitting. <laughs> that's so Citra is um, private, right? It's not a public hops, right? That they they own mm-hmm. that one. I'm um, pretty sure. Yeah. So yeah, they, they might uh, have it licensed out to some people, but um, I think it was a collaboration between Peral and Haas. I believe, which is another big hop grower in the Yakima Valley area. Yeah, um, that um, is kind of cool. So you work down there? Yeah, so uh, I I do a lot of research um, on different uh, chemical control um, for pests. And in the Yakima Valley, um, Toppenish area is where most of the hops are grown. That's where a lot of my hop research is done there and down in the Willamette Valley in Oregon. Right. Yeah, that was one of the things that uh, I pinpointed when we were talking was, as you said, Yakima. I was like, well, she knows her hops then probably, right? I'm learning about them. Yeah, I'm a tree fruit entomologist, but those hops are way too much fun to work in. Okay, so that's how we do these tastings. Are you ready to give us yours? I am, and I I do think that I need to read the awesome little blurb on the bat squatch can. Love it. So, yeah, it's, it's hilarious, and it's very PNW. It's very quirky. Okay, so here it goes. For years, rumors have circled that deep in the woods on Mount St. Helens was the fabled Batsquatch. While there are many tales of Batsquatch, they are all a bit hazy on the details, which makes the, the truth such a juicy mystery. So what better way to honor the legend than with a hazy, juicy IPA, perfect for camping and potentially making a new friend? And I can say that backpacking in Mount St. Helens, I have definitely made a few new friends. Uh, sharing beer and so it's very fitting that marketing um, person needs a raise that that's I agree. amazing it's it's just so classic washington and oregon in the mountains yeah <laughs> very fitting so this is a hazy india pale ale um honestly i tried this because it had the word hazy and it has this crazy looking bat sasquatch that's mutant that's thing that. on it and it just looked really interesting and then it became a favorite of mine uh, we're at 6.7% alcohol by volume at 54 IBU um, with a little bit of that. Um, well, I think just the, it does have citrusy hops in it, um, but the lactose in it too, with the, just kind of add some creamy kind of heaviness to it. I, I really enjoy that. Uh, it does have kind of a tropical flavor. I'm surprised it doesn't have citra in it. Um, and it looks like on untapped, we're at 3.75. So that's pretty good. Yeah, I no. would rate it higher personally, but. <laughs> well, you're going to rate it personally, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. We got to get, a, we got, we're going to go around on our ratings right here. So Joshua, what would you give uh, yours from Cigar City? I'd probably come in pretty close to the national average. I'd say about 3.75. I like it, but it's. I also don't think it's my favorite. Matthew, what are you giving yours? Global's a 4.37. I'm going to give it a 4.25. I feel bad, but I can't go to the 4.5 on it. Yeah, you got to go to quarters. Yep. Quarters gets you on that one. 
Um, Alex, what would you give yours? So mine's at a 3.75, but I'm going to raise it up to a 4.1. I really like this beer. That's good. You know, taste is relative. We've said that from the beginning. Um, just because, you know, someone doesn't like it doesn't mean someone else won't. So that's good. Mm-hmm. I think that it should be that way. I So I already told you that I gave mine a 4.5. Uh, I will stick with that. This is This is perfect for me right up my alley. So that's what we're drinking tonight. Um, We are going to talk about hops a little bit here before we hit the break, especially Citra. Um, We've never been in a hops acreage. We've never been next to the plants, Alex. So we're going to ask you some (laughs) really basic questions before we get into the agricultural stuff. Um, sure. I mean, how, how, how tall are these things? These are all trellised up. These vines go up and are trellised back down. How tall are these things? Yeah. I mean, they, they it depends on what kind of hop yard you're looking at, but they're usually over 10 feet tall. I wow. think most people do the 12 to 15 foot trellis, um, and they get really heavy. So hops are, I believe if not the fastest, one of the fastest, um, terrestrial, fastest terrestrial growing plants. Um, so they grow very rapidly. Um, and they just get really, really heavy. So they string them up with this twine, um, and then when it comes time to harvest them, they'll cut them down, uh, and they, it's like baling hay. They look, people make it look easy when they're throwing these things up on the truck. Um, but they're just, they're not very forgiving when you're working in them, which is something that I kind of had a, a rude introduction to when I first started uh, running around hop yards. They have these little tiny spines on them, and some people have worse reactions than others. Really? But, um, yeah, they, they're they not very forgiving. I remember the first time I went into a hop yard, um, I had a short sleeve shirt on, and uh, I was running between uh, the different rows and had a couple of the vines reach out and grab me, and uh, they, they're kind of sticky, not like, um, like stickery, I guess. And then when they kind of rake against your skin, they can leave welts. <laughs> Man, you had some hop injuries. Just, just yeah. Evil. Yeah. So, and I think my histamine response to them is is probably greater than a lot of people's. But um, yeah, that was kind of my first rude awakening into hops. But I still think they're a fascinating crop. They smell delicious. Um, I don't know if you've been to Yakima in the late summer, early fall when they're harvesting, but it's just the town smells like beer. It's awesome. Really? Yeah. No, I've never been to Yakima. I would love to go there. So they're that aromatic? Absolutely. Yeah. Especially when they start getting the kilns going and you can just, you can smell it driving through town. It's great. That is pretty cool. We'll, we'll get into some pests and stuff uh, in the second half and talk about that. But you're kind of, uh, I'm, don't take offense to this, but you're kind of short and these things are pretty <laughs> tall. And I'm imagining if you're going to have to look around the plant for these bugs, that's a little bit of a challenge. Absolutely. I actually had a, uh, a grower show me a really cool way of scouting for powdery mildew. I'm five foot two, and these <laughs> things are huge. And if you're scouting for a pest, it doesn't matter what the pest is, um, but if you're scouting for a pest that is distributed in the canopy, you need some special tools to get the job done. And when I rolled up to one of the hop yards, um, a scissor lift on the back of a flatbed trailer pulled by a four-wheeler was waiting for us. Dang. Um, and I was like, did you guys get this out just for me? <laughs> They're like, no, we use this all the time. Um, so they take this scissor lift through the hop yard and they will scout for powdery mildew at different ele- or at different heights of the canopy. 
Um, and it's a great way to get a more holistic view of what's going on in the hop yard. When is harvest? Uh, harvest is going to depend on variety, um, but it's probably going to start um, maybe as early as August. There might be a few varieties earlier than that. Uh, I usually work in Cascade hops. That tends to be a pretty susceptible variety for powdery mildew. Um, and so those, those tend to be kind of that uh, late summer, early fall kind of timing. So kind of the standard harvest time. Yeah, I, I think there's some, some crossover with some of the other crops that I work in. So I, I also work in apples and cherries are going to be a bit earlier than that. But uh, some of the poem and stone fruit in the area, there'll be some overlap. Okay, I got to represent for my East Coast that is not standard harvest time for us at all here in Florida. <laughs> That's like everything is dead here in August because it's so hot. Yeah. Do you guys only do one harvest there? Uh, yeah. Yeah, there's one harvest at the end of the season. I was going to say, aren't things like pretty much growing all year round in Florida? Uh, we do. Most things grow two seasons, including we've been doing hops now, and our hops, we're getting two seasons out of them. Um, but we're harvesting in like November and then again in April. Wow, that's fascinating uh, because hops aren't planted every year. Uh, hops are, you know, they they get burned back and then they grow higher again and then you harvest them, you burn them back and then they grow again. I wonder if that shortens the the longevity of the vines of like each planting. That would be interesting. Yeah, I'm not sure. That would be interesting to know. I know we are having to use artificial lighting to kind of replicate your guys' long days because we're closer to the equator here. We don't have as long a days. So we have to actually extend our daylight with artificial LEDs so it's almost like growing marijuana, but under it doesn't require as expensive a lighting. It's a pretty low-grade like LED lighting, but we do extend our days by like three or four hours every day, um, getting up close to the harvest season, into the bloom, you know, the bloom. Well, they're very related to marijuana. I mean, that's why they share a lot of the same pests. But yeah, that's, that's interesting to try and extend the, the light cycle. And then they don't really get much of a rest because of that. That's really interesting. Right. That's. I mean, that's most stuff we grow in Florida. We don't give it a lot of rest. We. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we'll we'll harvest in like November and December, and then be harvesting again in April on a lot of stuff. Well, I think I think what this proves is uh, we just need to have a, a toast from coast to coast field trip yeah. up to Yakima in August, down. probably. Or up or over. <laughs> <laughs> up and over. Um. Very good. So yeah, we we've talked about citra a lot. We've talked about the flavor profiles. It's juicy. It's fruit. You usually see it in those types of things. Um, and we've kind of been helping people with this podcast that have been listening identify that flavor and the hops that they like. And so we were actually coming up with other ones that have the same profile as um, Citra. And um, Matt, you have one that you're kind of on right now that a couple of your buddies are on too that are a lot similar. Yeah, so... I don't know nearly as much as uh, Alex does about <laughs> hops. I've, I've never had any hop injuries, but you've uh, had hop injuries. Maybe. It's, well, <laughs> it's falling over after it's been fermented. Yeah, no, definitely. Indirectly hop related. That's right. True. That's right. Um, I think galaxy is one that is really up my alley. I think, you know, my cousin kind of isolated that and galaxy, citra, Eldorado are all kind of, 
up my alley, but I normally look if I see a galaxy, I, I try to I try to get after that. Didn't they make a galaxy baby, the Citra Baby alternative? Yeah, so the the baby series from Alvarado Street, they've done Nelson, Citra, Galaxy, and it, it's helpful for me to isolate a hop and find out what I really like. And I gave that Citra Baby at the time a 4.5 also. Um, but yeah, the Galaxy Baby was my favorite of that series. Alex, you also, we were talking about Galaxy, and you also had one that you uh, you got because of that, and, and you like that one too? Yeah, yeah. So uh, there's one from uh, Ninkazi, uh, Galaxy Trippin'. It's a, a seasonal release that includes Galaxy in it. Um, yeah, it's really good too. <laughs> I like the, I like anytime they do a single hop or like identify a hop. I think that's huge because it allows you to actually taste that flavor and, you know, aside from a bunch of different hops that are in there. And I wouldn't know the difference between hops if it wasn't for people doing those single hop series. Yeah. I think that's getting more popular now. Um, people doing single hops so people can kind of identify that way when they try blends, it's like, oh, I see why they put those together. Yeah. And then one of the other ones we talked about too, Josh, Centennial kind of surprised us. We 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 were kind of shocked that we ended up liking it. Uh, you had it in one and I had it in a completely separate one that was headlining Centennial. But that, that's that got a good profile that you like too. Yeah. And that, that was actually one that, you know, I'd had it in a few beers where it was one of, you know, several hops in the beer. And it was beers, you know, I kind of liked. And then I got to try that one off, um, that one hop of Centennial, and it was a really solid beer. And then I started kind of identifying beers that were Centennial heavy and going after those and uh, found out it's a, it's a hop I like a lot. I don't know if I like it quite as much as Citra, but I like it a lot. Alex, any any uh, any other hops uh, that you either like drinking or like working in? You said you worked a lot in Cascade, but any other hops that you uh, want to talk about before we hit the break here and then get back into ag after? Yeah, well, just kind of a side note about the Centennial. If you like the Citra, I think it's, I mean, I, I enjoy Centennial as well, but if you like Citra, I think it's interesting when people also like Centennial because they're kind of, they're not necessarily opposites, but they're definitely different. Um, but Centennial is very similar to Cascade. Um, so I, I've worked with that hop on the ag side, but also um, I, I drink quite a few beers that also have Cascade in them, which is appropriate for my region. It makes sense, right? <laughs> yeah, if <laughs> yeah, the but, freshness you have up there has to be amazing. I, I mean, when you're driving through an area and it just smells like beer outside, yeah, that's when you know it's really fresh. <laughs> Jealous. Who's the, who's the best brewery up there by you, just out of curiosity? Oh, man, there's so many to choose from. I mean, they're literally everywhere. Um, the closest one that's one of my, like, my more local favorite, uh, I'm about half an hour from Leavenworth, Washington, which is one of my major, like, ski slash trail running slash backpacking hubs. Um, there's Icicle Brewery. And they have all of their hops are named after different mountains and different kind of local um, mountaineering That's type cool. names. Yeah, so their their bootjack IPA is pretty darn good. Um, they also have like a, a German chocolate stout one that is delicious. It tastes like German chocolate cake. Nice. Yeah, that's probably my favorite to hit up. In in that area, I guess it's not super close to you, but one of our favorites is Great Notion, of course, up there in. Uh... A little bit south of you, right? Yeah, yeah. Where is that? That Portland. Is that just north of Yak? Oh, Portland. Okay, yeah. I'm going to Portland in a few weeks. I'll have to swing by again. <laughs> 
Hit up Great Notion. It's worth it. All right. We're going to talk about the spotted lantern fly. What is that? It's this weird, uh, what I thought was a fly, but uh, <laughs> Alex corrected me on that. So we'll get into that a little bit after the break and uh, talk about some funny social media stuff that's going along with it. The general public is uniting with the agriculture industry to uh, fight this pest. So we'll talk about some of that when we come back. You've been listening to a toast from coast to coast. Don't forget to tell a friend and subscribe to the podcast. And let us know if you have any ideas for the show on our Facebook page. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the second half of the segment. We had a great time in the first one, getting to know Alex, who likes hanging around bugs. That's what we determined, right? Bugs and, yep. bugs and pests. <laughs> so we're going to do a second round of beer tastings uh, real quick. And since you know how to do it, Alex, ladies first, what are you drinking? Sure. Yeah, so I have a Galaxy Trippin' from Ninkazi. It is a seasonal release, so I feel pretty like this is kind of special uh they're calling it a stellar ipa i think they're just calling it that because of the galaxy hops it is much brighter uh than that bat squash that i was drinking earlier um it's more fruity in a bright light kind of way it is seven percent abv and 45 ibu and they have it rated as rated as a 3.72 on untapped yeah i it's different. It's different. It's very different from the bat squatch for sure. It's not quite as heavy um, and pretty fruity. Very good. Let's go ahead and get a, a rating from you. What would you give it? So is that a 3.72? I'm going to go with a 3.6. Hmm. Yeah, I, I like it, but I don't like it as much as bat squatch. Well, we all found out that you love bat squatch. So. I do. It's true. Very good. Matthew, what are you cracking on the second one? Well, all of our listeners out there, they call me, they text me, they slide the DMs. They tell me to bring the fire, Taylor. Okay. What do you got? I got trapped in the 90s by Monkish. Ooh, Monkish. <laughs> bringing out the heavy hitter in Monkish. And there's some citra in here. Okay. Citrus, Simcoe, and uh, a hop that I don't know how to pronounce, but I'm going to go with uh, Motuka. We've struggled with that before. Yeah. Motuka. Motuka. So I'm, I'm pouring it as we speak, so I'll get back to you on my rating. Okay. Let's, we'll, get, we'll, get to, uh, we'll get to Josh. You can come back with that. Joshua, what are you, what are you cracking on the second one? I am cracking a Reef Donkey American Pale Ale. Um, you guys might not know a Reef Donkey being way up there in the mid or northwest where do you guys even way west um it is it is the common name we were talking about in the breakout alex loves common names so this even though it's called a reef donkey this animal is not actually a donkey it's a fish <laughs> what kind of a fish it's a an amberjack it is in the jack family of fish this is an amberjack it's a rather large amberjack so these things Typically, I mean, they are born as babies, but typically run anywhere from like four to seven feet long and is, is a pretty beefy fish. And they like to hang out around reefs, so they have got the common name of reef donkey. Um, but you never do see any kind of equine animal there under the Gulf of Mexico. I was going to say, do they bray or something? <laughs> yeah. 
Did you look it up? Does it get a good rating? It is just about where my last one was. This one is at a 3.68. It is also 5.5%. But I would say I like this one better than the Guaybara. Okay, quick rating. What do you give it? I would give it a 3.75, which I guess is what I gave the Guaybara. But when you're stuck to the quarters... Kind of handcuffed. It's terrible. Untapped. You listening? Yeah, I can't say it's a. I can't say it's a four beer. It's not. If I was going off the cuff, you know, not in the quarters, three point eight five. All right. Very good. Very good. All right, Matthew, you've tasted yours. What What do we got there? So the global on this is four point three six. I'm going four point two five. All right. All right. Monkish, mm, wow. Monkish is solid though. Monkish is solid. Monkish is solid. I cracked a brain cake by. Parish Brewing Company out of Louisiana. This was in my last Tavor shipment. Um, it globally gets a 4.22, 8.4% alcohol. Um, it's a double wheat malt. Um, it's got some dry hop in it, strata, cashmere. Um, got, also got Citra Incognito, which is one of those ones that we have no clue what it means. So we'll I have like to the incognito that. part, though. Right. I know. Me too. <laughs> Uh, it's good. It's um, it gets a four point two two. It's 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 citrusy. It's hazy. It's fruity. Um, but something about it brings it down a little bit in um, the maltiness or the bitterness of it, and uh, kind of tones it down a little bit. So it's good. Uh, four point two two is what it's given. I would give it a if I could four point one, but I'd give it a four. I'd give it a four for sure. So I'm in on that one. Um, earlier, Alex, you talked about lactose. Do you like lactose in beer or no? I do. I like it a lot. I think it gives it that kind of creamy, heavier quality that I really like, even though it's not um, necessarily a stout or a heavy, dark beer. It gives that sort of weight to hazy IPAs and other types of IPAs, like Milkshake IPA. Big fan. Yeah. Yeah, the, they're doing the lactose, and then you're starting to see the oats now, too. The oats blended in to do some of that stuff, too. So, Matt, yeah, you're a fan of yeah. the milkshakes, right? Yeah, I mean, people think it's it's cheating if you add the lactose, but I if you don't <laughs> if you're not cheating, you're not trying. I'm I'm I like it. The first several it's that I chemistry, it's not cheating. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> the first several that I had were lactose and vanilla, and I think I associated the vanilla with the lactose. But then I had one that was just lactose and no vanilla, and you're right; it changes it changes the whole kind of drinkability. Yeah, but it's still good. It, you know, the milkshake IPAs. I don't think they're going anywhere. I know, like I said, I know a lot of people don't like it, but I'm here for it. Yeah, it's going to be here for a while. I think Alex is okay with that too. Apparently, absolutely. Yeah, keep it coming. <laughs> All right, let's talk about uh, agriculture here. Um, when we talk about hops, pests, uh, bugs, or you know, there's other pests too. But what are the main pests that we're looking at in hop production? So most of the pests that I work with, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty regionally specific in Washington and Oregon. Um, so the major ones that I get the most complaints about and people wanting to know the most about tend to be aphids and spider mites. So there's a specific hop aphid and then spider mites in general. Um, but there's some, some weevils, which are types of beetles. Uh, there's a root weevil that affects hops. There's a couple of different um, lepidopteran pests. Those are moths and butterflies, um, different, different worms that people have to worry about. Um, and then every now and then we get these sort of cyclical pests where one year you don't really see any or maybe a couple of years go by. Uh, and then 
for whatever reason, whether it's just some environmental changes, uh, you start to see something pop up that a lot of people might think are, is new, but it just kind of went for a little um, a little break for the last couple of years. So gray hair streak moth, or gray hair streak, it's actually a butterfly, um, is one of those sort of cyclical pests that just came back in the last couple of years. We'll probably see it for a little while. and. Uh, things, even though they're sticking around for a while, they can be pests um, only in certain numbers. So the numbers might go down, it still might be around, but not in high enough numbers to really be considered a concern. With the, with the humidity up there, and I say that because we're in California, but with uh, some of the humidity <laughs> up there, um, does that create any fungal issues? I mean, do you guys have issues with that up there? So uh, in... Eastern Washington, so pretty much anything on the eastern side of the Cascades, uh, is actually really, really dry. Uh, we're pretty arid. Um, folks over in Florida are going to have a lot more disease pressure because of their humidity than we do. Um, but we do get these humid pockets that are sort of just in the little microclimate of the hop yard. That's true of a lot of agriculture in this area. Um, so it happens in orchards and other things too. But we will see powdery mildew, uh, fusarium, a couple of different plant pathogens. Um, all of my training is in entomology, so when it comes to plant pathology and weed science, it's pretty new to me. So it's been refreshing, and I'm learning a lot about it, um, but I'm definitely not an expert. Uh, but I have been learning a lot about powdery mildew because that tends to be the biggest one that people are most concerned about with hops. Yeah, definitely a big issue here with the grape growers in California. Um, the one thing that you do know um, a good amount about, and that's I know this because we talked about it in our professional careers, is the spotted lanternfly. So we're going to start off with a real basic question. Tell me about this fly. So it's not a fly. Okay. <laughs> um, so uh, we had a conversation earlier about reef donkey being a common name for a fish. Um Spotted lanternfly is a common name for an insect that is actually not a fly. Um, it's, it's a type of plant hopper, um, also known as a fulgorid. That's its family name, is fulgoridae. Uh, and it's a, a, about a one-inch long uh, plant hopper that is native to Asia and showed up uh, in the United States in 2014. Um, it is, <laughs> why do people call it a lanternfly then, Alex? So historically, the family Fulgoridae, uh, we're talking like 1800s early, earlier on, there was a, mis, um, a misconception that these lanternflies glowed, which is actually not true. They don't glow. It'd be really cool if they did, but they don't. Um, and that just sort of stuck into their common name. Um, and so they don't glow or anything, but they are actually really attractive. They're I was really going to say, pretty. they're really pretty. Yeah, which is kind of a problem because people don't <laughs> like to kill pretty things, right? <laughs> so when we think of like controlling pests that are butterflies, which tend to be really charismatic and beautiful, but their larvae um, can cause really severe crop damage, uh, that's a problem. And so when we go to spotted lanternfly, um, their nymphs and their adult life stages are very charismatic and very beautiful. So the nymphs start out as black with all of these little white spots on them. And then as they mature, they turn bright, vivid red, and they keep some of those spots. Uh, and then when they uh, go into their last stage as adults, 
um, they're sort of this like kind of dusky gray color with these spots. And then when they spread their wings to fly, they're bright red underneath. So they're they're really beautiful, but they're also very, very dangerous to agriculture. So Taylor, first off, I'm a little upset you didn't throw it to me first <laughs> to weigh in on this. <laughs> right. Sorry. Your spotted lanternfly knowledge is probably uh, much higher, but go ahead. Right. So I just Google imaged this thing. Right. <laughs> and it is really pretty, I'll admit. <laughs> but... Are we killing this thing? We got to kill these guys, right? Yeah. So it's, oh, you, yeah. you mentioned that it, it showed up in 2014. So where is it, Alex? Uh, so it showed up in Pennsylvania in 2014. So currently it's still on the East Coast. Um, it's been found and documented in Virginia, New Jersey, Delaware, Maryland, West Virginia, New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and North Carolina. Um, and the really, I mean, kind of cool thing, the nerdy thing about getting a new invasive insect, uh, you have entomologists who are really good about doing predictive modeling. So they can look at different environmental factors and they can put that on a map and they can run these tests that tell you where is a suitable habitat uh, in any given area, where is a good potential uh, distribution hotspot for the pest of concern. So when the modeling was done for uh, the United States, um, Washington, uh, right in the middle of Hop Central, uh, was a major hotspot. Uh, California, uh, Washington, and Oregon all had hotspots. And then there was this huge, uh, widespread hotspot that range from the northeast uh, all the way into eastern Kansas and just sort of led everywhere. You're probably pretty lucky down in, in Florida. You're probably going to be okay in Florida. Why is that? Um, it could have something to do with humidity or um, usually it has to do with uh, temperature extremes. Uh, we do have a lot of those. Absolutely, yeah. So the modeling will take into consideration things like humidity and temperature, what those extremes are going to be, uh, elevation, uh, all sorts of different um, aspects, both biological and abiological. So the reason we don't have any elevation here, though, just the extreme weather. Yeah, you're it probably not find something like this super high up in the mountains anywhere in the in the Pacific Northwest either. But in those agriculturally important areas. Um, those were definitely hot spots. So we're talking about this because um, it has a wide host range. Um, grapes are a big concern, but hops are a big concern. Um, and and we are hearing word that we may have some of these uh, in the western states. We may hear more of that from um, a particular agriculture news outlet here soon. But um, are you saying these guys are going to fuck with my beer? They could screw with your beer. I mean, that's what we're talking <laughs> about here. So um, what kind of damage are we looking at as far as this, this pest, Alex? I mean, is this like a, a thing that could really affect things? Absolutely. So when you're looking at any invasive species, there are certain characteristics that make it really good at invading certain areas. So most invasive species have more than one generation per year, but spotted lanternfly only has one. So that's, there's one point in our court in agriculture. Um, but one of the other uh, big predictors is having a wide host range. Um, the more 
crops and uh, even non-cultivated space that you can occupy as an invasive species, the more likely you are going to be able to invade. So in the case of spotted lanternfly, we're looking at all sorts of different um, agriculturally important crops, so specialty crops. Um, we're looking at hardwood trees, so there's the logging industry and the nursery industry and even urban areas. Uh, when we look at the crops that it's affecting uh, or has the potential to affect, that's almonds, which are extremely high value crop in California, uh, apples, apricots, cherries, uh, we talked a lot about grapes and hops, um, but also nectarines, peaches, plums, uh, walnuts. Damn, uh, yeah, any that's type everything. Of tree nut. Yeah, and then you get into these sort of uh, important urban trees. Yeah, well, and you're also not going to have any shade because it's going to go into your urban areas, and that's where it's going to go for uh, things like maple Wait, and some pine. bullshit. How'd they get here? Time out, time out. Wait, I can't have a snack and a beer under a tree with some shade? That's what's going to happen? Pretty much. Alex, how did they get here? So uh, we're not really sure, but we, we do have some ideas on how just invasive species get places in general. Uh, it does have to do with international and global trade. So the more globalized, um, we got to build more the wall. globalized we get. <laughs> not going to keep them <laughs> yeah, out either. They can fly. This is Those flying. Fly. Build a build a dome. <laughs> a dome. They're tall walls. So when you're moving agricultural products or nursery products, um, you tend to take whatever pests are on those. Um, on those cuttings, like leaf cuttings and things like that, root material, root stock, um, those can get transported. We do have um, pretty stringent rules about how things get sanitized before they come in. Um, but then you also have something like spotted lanternfly. Their egg masses um, are extremely cryptic. So if they lay an egg mass on a concrete block, it basically looks like the concrete. So it's pretty well hidden. Uh, so they, they could have laid eggs on a shipping container or uh, for shipping concrete blocks around or um, locally people are trying to be really careful about moving things like the trailers. Um, they could be on your vehicle, things like that. Uh, so there's a lot of ways, ways that they can hitchhike around. So you touched a little bit about on how you guys are doing things to, you know, clean things coming in to kind of create a quarantine. What is the, what does the spread of this pest look like? You know, in Florida and I think now some out in California, we've had the Asian citrus psyllid has been a huge bug problem, um, especially for the Florida citrus industry. And we've done a lot to try to really like, you're not allowed to move citrus in and out of the state right now, as far as trees so are they doing that for this non-fly so there's a there's a quarantine zone um in in the eastern u.s uh where it was first found in, in pennsylvania so they've been doing their best to to contain it um every time you find a, a new um a new detection outside of that quarantine area it can get really frustrating though because you're trying to contain it um and then some of those containment um procedures involve Checking equipment, checking trucks, checking things that are leaving and coming out of the area, um, and then restricting what can go in, or more likely what can come out um, of that quarantine zone. Um, so there are, there are procedures in place. Um, it is just very difficult for something so cryptic when it comes to egg masses and something that can fly. Um, and the other thing is, you, you said you looked up a picture of what they look like. 
they look very different with their wings closed versus when their right. wings are open. We were just saying that it, it's like looks that, like yeah, a totally like different gray bugs. When they're... Yeah. Yeah. So imagine you're you're you know driving your four wheeler through an apple orchard or something, and you're going by, and those are all over a tree trunk with their wings closed. If you're zipping through on your four wheeler, you're probably not going to notice something that looks like tree sure. bark on your trees. But if their wings are open, um, you know they have that bright yellow uh, on their abdomen, and they have that red under or the red um, the second set of wings. So they do swarm the tree trunks. I was kind of curious about that because I looked up the images, and there's a few images of them like swarmed on tree trunks. Yeah, they love to aggregate. They like hanging out with each other. <laughs> Alex, I need someone to blame. Where, where are these guys native? Where are they native from? Oh, man. We got to be really careful when we come to... I mean, it's kind of like when diseases are first found in certain areas. Um, you have to be really careful about where they're from. That's why we don't usually name things after where they came from. We have the Asian citrus salad. Yeah, you mean like the Asian citrus salad? <laughs> yeah. We got to get her another beer. We, yeah, we probably wouldn't name a new insect pest. Um, that <laughs> um but they are they are native to asia um and then when they looked at that model of where potential um uh, habitat for them could be uh, it's pretty much all over europe and uh, the areas i described in in north america or in uh, so the u.s so it's the asian spotted lanternfly we don't call it that but Cor that it's is the corona flies <laughs> it's the asians Matt, blame the Asians. Well, well, it's super easy, nerdy, easy, but easy. I actually learned why they're calling it coronavirus. I don't know anything about viruses, but the actual virus, like if you look at it under a microscope and can see the structure of it, it has like this little crown of proteins on the top. So they call it the coronavirus. No way. Huh. Yeah. We should do a separate podcast on the coronavirus. Do you have a vaccine oh, for the coronavirus? Yeah, there there the is a podcast. Oh, there is a podcast? What's the podcast? Yeah, it's called This Podcast Will Kill You. It's put on by uh, two women who are um, disease experts, basically. They uh, study pathology. I like it. I'm going to have to look that one up. See, Taylor doesn't keep up with podcasts because he can't even keep up with the memes. <laughs> they're, they're not called memes. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Don't even try to turn that table. <laughs> I was going to say, wait a second. <laughs> so uh, one of the other issues, before we get to some, some kind of fun with this past, one of the other issues is the, the sheer quantity of these, right? I mean, they their their populations can get like large in size. That's the other issue? Yeah, so that's kind of, that's one of those other characteristics of sort of, you know, how do you build the perfect invasive species? Um, generations per year, um, they only have one, but most invasive species that are really successful have several. Um, but what it makes up for, um, or what it lacks in generations per year, it sort of makes up for in how many eggs are in each egg mass that the females can lay. So each egg mass can contain 30 to 50 eggs. Holy crap. So, yeah, so it doesn't take long for the population in in any general area to really grow and expand. Um, they came here without any of their natural enemies, any of the, the biological control agents that would normally keep their population at bay in their native range. We do have uh, some examples of certain things trying to eat them. Um, you know, people have gotten photos of like birds and and uh, praying mantises and things like that eating spotted lanternfly. But when it comes to just sheer numbers, it's not enough. 
Crazy. Well, we need to keep those bugs out of our uh, hops so we can keep enjoying our beers, right? Do we need some birds Absolutely. and praying mantai around here? <clears throat> yeah, we definitely need that some is... IPM. We'll talk about that in a minute. Hold on, Alex. I know yeah. you're going to jump on that. Uh, right. We wanted to uh, to talk about the one of the reasons I started reporting on this was because there's actually some pretty funny things happening on this. Doesn't sound funny. <clears throat> well, <laughs> since it's where it is uh, in in Philadelphia, right? So Philadelphians hate outsiders, pretty much. Sure, um, they're infamous for snowballing Santa Claus back in the seventies at mm. a uh, football game, right. um, and that's their kind of mo. And uh, when I started reading up on this, I found this article done by uh, a newspaper um, in Philadelphia. And they talked about, it was an opinion article, but it was this guy who followed along this group who was part of the um, the Spotted Lanternfly, Keystone State Lanternfly Kill Squad. Kill and they've, <laughs> they've fully adopted this thing. I love it. They've taken the Philadelphia Flyers mascot, Gritty, and they've put him on a logo. And they're going around the city. And as soon as they see a population of these, they're killing them. I love it. And when they... When he was following one of these members um, in the city, they walked around the corner and there was a smattering of these lantern flies <laughs> on the ground that people had aggressively stepped on and killed. So, weird thing, somehow they've united the general public and ag industry with this kill squad. I feel like this is what we need. <laughs> Just a bunch yeah, of kill squads? Hey. Yeah. Let's get them together. You gotta do what you gotta do. That's right. And then also, when I brought this up and we were talking about this with Alex, and the the joke that Josh was trying to make is that I call them memes, but uh, there's a, there's a bunch of uh, memes is what they're called apparently about um, Lanternfly, right? Uh, Alex, you 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 uh, sent me over the list today, and they're pretty funny. Yeah, it's so great. So on Instagram, there's Lanternfly memes, and. Uh, I've been asking all of my entomologist friends, like, who's doing these? And I have some friends that are doing research on SLF, and nobody wants to take credit for it. So I don't know who is doing this, but whoever they are, they are hilarious, and I love it. I think my favorite one, somebody dressed up their toddler like a spotted lanternfly, and they're, like, (laughs) crawling on the floor. And there's, like, the person's foot, like, they're going to squish their kid. It just makes me so happy. It's fantastic. Uh-huh. <laughs> we're we're full on. Yeah. We've joked about dadding versus dating before. We're full on dadding right now um, at Matt's house with his kids in the background. You probably can hear him. We're gonna make them kill squad. Right, they're ready. There you go. They are ready. Perfect. Yeah, a little army of spotted lanternfly stompers. It's perfect. It's the way we're gonna do it if it's uh, found here in the state. Uh, so let's touch on IPM. Let's touch on how we keep these bugs at bay. Um, what can we do here, um, Alex? I mean, I know this falls on the production side of things and the growers, but, uh, you know, what needs to be done to, to, to kind of keep a handle on this? Well, when it comes to, um, just integrated pest management in general, that means that we're using a bunch of different, um, pest management tactics. Uh, we are, we're using, uh, things like we are using chemical control, but we can also use sanitation methods where you're cleaning up, um, old fruit or old crop on the ground that would normally just kind of lay there and become a refuge for some pests. Uh, We're cleaning stuff like that up. Uh, You can prune things certain ways. There's all sorts of different um, control methods that go together in the IPM toolbox. 
unfortunately, as much research as we can do in IPM for certain crops, when we get a new invasive species, at first that tends to go out the window. Um, and the reason for that is, is it's because we're trying to get a hold on the situation and get the population down um, and make sure that we're still able to produce high quality fruit that's not damaged. Um, and sometimes when you get these invasive species and you're trying to export your crop somewhere, uh, certain places will not accept it if it is contaminated with that invasive species because they don't want it either. Um, and so IPM gets disrupted when you get new integrate or when you get new invasive species. Uh, so I think it's wonderful to join a kill squad if you can physically remove spotted lanternfly. <laughs> that is wonderful. We're, sign we're so signing up right now. We're going to create a California logo. Don't come to California. There you go. It's over. <laughs> Getting ready. Yeah. So um, I think I think that's great, and it gets people thinking about. Uh, a, a pest that can also affect urban landscapes, um, but can also affect your neighbors that are trying to grow food for you to eat. Uh, so as we start to learn more about an invasive species after it's been here for a little while, uh, then we tend to learn how to reintegrate integra or integrated pest management and find ways um, that uh, combined are really powerful in preventing pest damage. Um, Eradication is usually not the goal of IPM. Usually it's just controlling the population to a manageable level. Um, in the case of a brand new invasive species, like when it first showed up in Pennsylvania, I think eradication uh, was the goal initially just because it was so isolated. Um, but now that it's starting to spread further and further, I don't know if that is necessarily feasible. Um, so the more we can learn about new invasive species, the more we can learn about the pests that we currently have and how to control them with a variety of different tactics, um, the more sustainable our agriculture will be. So I'm a huge uh, proponent of IPM. Um, I do a lot of research on chemical control, but in order for chemical control to be um, a, some, a tool that we can use long term, we need to use integrated pest management to prevent things like insecticide res resistance. So um, I come from an IPM lab, so that's what my background is in. And I also worked with a, a different invasive species in graduate school. Um, but when it comes to something like spotted lanternfly, the more we can learn, um, the more tools that we will have so that we can protect our beer and have it be spotted yeah. lanternfly, honeydew-free. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so Alex, you were talking about pest management, and I, I think it's an interesting subject to talk, to talk about, um, especially because of public perception, and I think if there's something we hope to do with this podcast, um, and the reason in tying beer and agriculture is to, a little bit to change the public perception of agriculture, because I think people don't know enough about where their food comes from. So, that said, organic is something you that in the public perception, I think, has a very different view um, from what's you know, reality and what, what agriculture is. On the pest front, can you talk a little bit about organic agriculture and how that doesn't necessarily mean that it's pesticide-free? Yeah, yeah. So I think that is one of the biggest um, sort of misconceptions when people are buying organic produce uh, or organic food products. They tend to think that that means that it's completely spray-free, uh, and that's not necessarily true. Uh, and then in some cases, it can actually mean that it's sprayed more frequently. So when I think of agricultural sustainability, uh, there's a lot of different facets that 
come into play there. And one of the ones that's most important to me when I make my personal decisions when buying food is carbon footprint. Um, and so when you have a crop that is grown uh, organic, uh, depending on what that crop is, some certain crops um, might be more susceptible to certain disease or pest pressure than others. And so if they're grown in an organic management scheme, it might actually need to be sprayed more frequently. Um, and that, that has to do with the susceptibility of the crop, but it can also have to do with um, the potency of the organic pesticides that can be used. So they tend to not last as long. Um, and so depending on what that pest spectrum is, they might get sprayed more frequently. Uh, there are some crops that growing them in an organic way, um, organic pest management scheme uh, would be more sustainable. Um, but in my part of the world where it's, you know, fresh fruit, things that uh, people really have a low tolerance for pest damage for, those would tend to get sprayed more frequently. Oh, just another aspect of the carbon footprint, it has nothing to do with spraying necessarily. It also has to do with how much land is necessary to grow the same volume of food of that crop. And so some crops, if they're grown organic, are going to require more land than conventional agriculture. So there's a lot of sort of pros and cons, and I think it's really difficult for the public uh, to make decisions on what they're purchasing um, and for what reasons. Because again, there's a lot of different facets to what makes something sustainable. So Alex, am I supposed to buy organic or not when I go to Costco? Can you help me out? Because I don't know what to do. I mean, you're confusing really the depends. fuck out of me. <laughs> it, just, it depends on what your priorities are in when you're buying food. I think another misconception is that organic food is inherently healthier than conventional food. Um, and that's not necessarily true either. So the, the vitamin content and the nutritional content aren't necessarily going to be better. Organic just means in the context of agriculture that certain pesticides were or were not used on that crop. Um, conventional agriculture can still follow an integrated pest management scheme, which depending on the crop and depending on the location and the pest spectrum could be more sustainable. Well, so it really just depends. <laughs> listen, I'm going to organically donkey kick those lantern flies off my hops so I can have <laughs> some freaking fuck beer. Those, fuck those guys. I mean, I think that's... Can we all agree on that point? We all can agree on that, correct? <laughs> if correct. I see any lantern flies, I'm killing them. Yeah. Messing with your beer? Yeah. Can we, can we at least have that takeaway? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Very good. All right. Great episode. Alex, you're a rock star. We appreciate you joining us. Um, we're going to have you on again because you were so good. So um, appreciate the beer tasting and you taking some time with us tonight. Uh, hope you had fun. Awesome. Yeah, I absolutely did. Thank you for having me. Perfect. We will um, get back with uh, another topic and we'll do something else. Uh, you, you know a lot more than we do. So uh, we just like asking the dumb questions pretty much. That's all awesome. I have. Well, I, I love answering questions, whether they are dumb or not. <laughs> Joshua, thanks for holding down Florida. Um, we'll get together here soon and do another episode. And uh, Matt, thank you. Thanks Alex. for having me, guys. Absolutely. And of course, uh, be safe when you're drinking. Please enjoy your beer. Drink safe. Kill lantern flies. Kill lantern flies. Perfect. <laughs> if you enjoyed today's episode, suggest it to a friend and subscribe to the podcast. Thanks for joining us today for A Toast from Coast to Coast.